Good morning. Last week I joked about putting chocolates on the front seats to draw some of you forward. So these must be our chocolate lovers here. We haven't delivered yet. Sorry about that. Uh, boy, there's a lot of a lot of new faces here this morning, and I want to welcome you and thank you for coming. If you would do us just a huge honor by uh, filling out the zip strip in your bulletin and just letting us know that you're here. Uh, if, if you're here, we want to, this to be a church where you feel like you are known and where you belong. And this is one of the tools that we use to just know who you are. We want to help, help you in your walk with the Lord and shepherd you. So if you would do that, we would really uh, appreciate it. And uh, it's quite warm in here, isn't it? I wish I hadn't worn a wool sweater. But that'll, that'll keep me on pace. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us, and, uh, and then we'll get going. Father, it's very easy to come to this place and sit with our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ and have this wonderful music and these rich words that just compel us to say we surrender. And so the words drop out of our mouths so easy, and yet to submit our lives to that is quite a different thing. And so, Father, I ask uh, that we would be able to do to put into practice what we have just declared with our lips. That our lives would be lived in surrender to you. That those corners of our heart and of our practice that we have not yet yielded, God, that you would that you would move into those corners of our heart and take control. Father, as we go to your word now, may you teach us and instruct us by your Holy Spirit. Father, help me uh, to speak clearly. Please use my preparation this morning, and Father, please keep me from being any kind of an obstacle to what you would say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. If you open up your uh, bulletins, there's a handout in there, and uh, hopefully that will be helpful to you for this series. The title this morning is Fat, Dumb, and Happy. Uh, I love that phrase. You're going to find that everything about this passage teaches us about just being being just the opposite of that, in fact. Um, We're about halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes. The title of our series is, That's Just the Way It Is. And that is a pretty good summary line of, I think, the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. And since we're halfway here in chapter 7, this is a good time to just stop and pause and remind us of where we've been and where we're going and take a kind of a big picture look at the book to see what its purpose is and how it's organized and what its intended uh, purpose is. Uh, And in that way, I want to compare um, good Bible reading to hunting in Alaska. All right, you with me? Good hunting in Alaska, let's say you're after moose or something like that, and you come into the valley that you are looking for, and you do a couple of different things. First, you look with just kind of the naked eye, and you glance, and you see the valley as a whole, and you're watching it for movement, you're watching it for different signs of where of where whatever it is you're hunting, where it might be, and you're looking at the big picture. And then you pick up a good pair of binoculars and you systematically begin to work through different sections of the area that you're hunting. And then maybe you spot something. And so then you pick up the high-powered spotting scope and you zoom in on that and you get the details. And you're looking to see, does that moose have four brow tine or does it not? And does that horn on that sheep come full curl or does it not? 
And then when you put a stock on that animal, you look for some reference points within that area so that you don't lose yourself as you go through the valley or through the trees on your way to your target. And we need to do the same thing with the book of Ecclesiastes and with any book that we're reading. Good Bible reading keeps the sense of the whole and of the big picture as we move through it so we don't get lost in in the minutiae. And that's what we want uh, to do this morning. The title of our series, as I've already said, is That's Just the Way It Is because the book of Ecclesiastes is an honest look at life the way it is, life under the sun, or as we've paraphrased it, life life as we find it, life on the human plane, life as it really is. And really Solomon's theme throughout the book uh, centers around the Hebrew word habel, which we've talked an awful lot about. The NIV, which is the translation that I preach from, translates it meaningless. And we've talked about really probably a better understanding of it as vaporous, fleeting, transitory, elusive, or as Eugene Peterson has translated in his rendering of the Bible, the message, he translates it as smoke. Smoke, smoke, it's all smoke. You know, it looks like there's something there, but as you grasp for it, it it's elusive and it leaves us wanting. Uh, sort of the big idea of the book, the, 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 the big message, according to Ron Allen, uh, is this, that life is a gift from God. And we should seize it and enjoy it before it all too quickly passes. And then towards the end of the book, he gives us specific advice for how to do that. I've talked to you about J.I. Packer's sort of broad outline of the book. Really, he sees three points. The first point being vaporous, vaporous, life is vaporous. And that that's really uh, kind of the, the driving message of the book. And then he, he shows us in the next ten chapters, chapters one through ten, uh, just example after example where that's the case. And then finally, in the last two chapters, 11 and 12, Solomon gives a specific application for how do we go about living life when this is the case? How do we live life in a way that gets the most out of it when this is just the way that it is? And that's kind of the approach to the book that we've taken. I've argued that Solomon was the, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, and as sort of the wisest and one of the wealthiest men that ever lived, he is uniquely qualified to speak on this subject matter of how one is to live life well. Uh, Not because he himself mastered it. There's times where he teaches us from a wise perspective, and there's times that he teaches us from the pit that he dug for himself. But in all of his experimenting with life, He was able to chase every experiment all the way to the end, to its logical conclusion, and he is able to speak to us on what he found uh, in those experiments to see what they yielded, what they profited, or what they left wanting. Ecclesiastes would have been written at the end of his life, late in his life, uh, kind of reflecting back over things. And again, I've I've sort of compared the book to uh, Solomon's laboratory notes. Kind of like a mad scientist... He took life into the laboratory, ran experiment after experiment, and what we have here are his his reporting, his lab notes on what he he found here. And he does not tell us that we should do everything that he did, but he does ask us to learn from what he learned and from his discoveries along the way. Uh, So that's kind of, again, just an overview, big picture book, or look at the book that we've been studying. And again, chapter 7 is a really interesting passage because here we have this, this pattern that we've been kind of going through and we see what he's up to. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 7, Solomon seems to break from the pattern. 
And instead of, of kind of what we've been used to, we find this list of Proverbs. Uh, and so it's just a little bit different than where we've been, and it's, to be quite frank with you, difficult to outline sermonically for us this morning. So the outline I've put together for you, I hope is helpful, but take it with a grain of salt, okay? It's, it's just my best attempt to try to put some order to a list of Proverbs, okay? And, uh, but as I see the first 14 Proverbs that he kind of puts forward, and if I were to give a kind of a central theme to that, I would say that it's this, that hard times teach us more than happy times. Hard times teach us more than happy times. All of us in this room will or already have gone through some incredibly difficult season in life. And our temptation is to wish it away as quickly as possible. Some of you may have walked in this morning with it just all over you. And it is a burden that you can hardly shake. It could be a prolonged illness or the loss of a loved one. It could be a financial setback. It could be a painful conflict, a broken relationship, some kind of injustice that you have yourself suffered or a loved one has suffered. Or it could be a really deep desire that for you has, has gone unrealized and there's no end in sight. And I think for all of us, uh, like I said, we either have gone through this or we will, or maybe it's not just one of those, but maybe... Maybe you say, I'm four out of five there. I've got a bunch of those going on right now. Um, And again, I think our culture's tendency, my own tendency, when these painful things come up in life, is to try to get out from under it as quickly as possible. That's our temptation, right? You go to the grocery store, go to Fred's. Next time you're uh, in sort of the medication area, look at how long the rack is for pain relief medication. And that's just over the counter. When we're in pain, we want to be rid of it as quickly as possible. Um, on a couple of occasions, I have uh, had what's called a corneal abrasion. Anybody else in here ever had one of these? It's a fancy way of saying your eye got cut. And I think if you call it something you know, hard to pronounce, you can charge more money for fixing it. That's the theory that I'm working under. But it's happened to me three different times, and I think each time, or at least a couple of them, it was uh, a finger in the eye or a fingernail across the eye. The first time it happened, I was playing basketball, and someone kind of jabbed me in the eye. And, I, and it, it's just incredibly painful where your eye, um, it just burns. And uh, it tears up and wells up. How many of your eyes are watering right now just talking about it? Sort of that sympathy burn. Mine is. Uh, I can remember it. And it just burns, and then your face just starts to leak because, you know, that's what happens when your eyes hurt. And, and, uh, and you just kind of almost get panicky with it. And then you can kind of calm it down and get the tears to stop and sort of settle down for about a minute. And then it starts all over again. And it's just very distracting and, and painful. And um, finally, after kind of dealing with it for about a day or so, I went into the emergency room and said, listen, I just can't get this to stop hurting. And so they took this little vial with a, with a little brush in it and brushed it right on my eyeball. And it felt awesome. It was just like, oh, instant relief. Absolutely instant. I've never felt so bad and then so quickly good ever. 
And uh, so the second time it happened, I, you know, I went right to the optometrist and said, listen, just give, me, just give me the magic sauce here, you know, let's get this going. I don't care about the eye patch or the balm or any other stuff that I'm supposed to do, just, I just want a vial of that. And I think that is our tendency when any kind of pain comes into our life, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever it might be, we want out. We want out from the pain. And that becomes our prayer and our desire. God, just take me out of this pain. Deliver me from what I'm experiencing. Uh, And I don't think we're alone in that. And We find throughout scriptures those people that have walked with God before us have had those similar kinds of cries. Joseph, when he was in the dungeon at Potiphar's house, asked that the king's cupbearer would remember him and his favorable treatment of him so that he might be delivered from the dungeon. The prayers of David when Saul was pursuing him was, Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Those are prayers of a godly man. Go figure. And the prayers of Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane is, If you could take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And so, I think it just goes to show that human nature is to go through life fat, dumb, and happy. Um, and so it's at least nice to know that there are saints that have gone before us who had the same desires. But Solomon seems to take a different tack with regard to difficulty and pain in life. And he seems to tell us that hard times teach us more than happy times. And rather than wishing them away so we could get on with living a fat, dumb, and happy life, Solomon seems to say that God really wants us lean, smart, and sober. And that is part of what God is doing in these particular times. Look with me in chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It's better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who seek the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Well, there's a lot of just brilliant nuggets in this, just in these first 14 verses that you could, you could develop, and I can't develop each and every one of them. What I'd rather, what I want to do is look at the tone of that whole section and focus on the first verse and, and verses 13 and 14 because I think they really serve as brackets for what's contained in between. And in this first verse, there's something really interesting that's going on there. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. 
In the Hebrew language, there's actually a wordplay going on there that's not obvious to us in the English. And in Hebrew, it would sound like this. Tov Shem Mishem Tov. Tov Shem Mishem Tov. Do you hear that? It's, it's kind of like our on-the-job site. If we'd say, hey, you're working hard or hardly working, you know, and then everybody yucks it up. And it's one of those, those things that we say, and it very likely was kind of a common expression of the day there. If we were to capture in the English and sort of retain some of the, the poetic device that's going on there, it might sound something like this. Fair fame is finer than fine perfume. It would be another way of keeping the poetry and uh, showing what's being being said there. And so even as much as there's sort of word plays going on below the surface level of the text for you and I, the point is still very simple, isn't it? The inner character is more important than our outer fragrance. Who we really are is more important than perception. It is our character that counts. And it seems to me that that's what Solomon is getting across here, and he's showing that real character does not come easy, but that it is in fact forged in a life that, that, that weathers difficult times and difficult seasons. And that becomes the next point here that I see. Hard times form our character. Hard times form our character. And so in the next 11 verses, Solomon strings together proverb after proverb that kind of keeps saying this point in different ways. And so he contrasts these painful things with pleasant things in life. Death and birth, mourning, feasting, sorrow and laughter, sadness and pleasure, a rebuke from the wise and silly songs from fools. The hard things here he wants us to see are better instructors for our life in terms of forming the kind of character that really matters. They are more formative than the light-hearted frivolity of fools. And I don't think it takes long to really accept this point. Consider your own life. Consider the values that you hold deeply, the lessons that you have learned, that you are passionate about, these seasons in your life where you grew the most. Were they not through the times that were the most difficult and the most painful? Isn't it during those times that we grow the most? We may desire the other times, but it's when we come to the end of ourselves that we have no one else to turn to but the Lord. And that's when we learn life's real lessons. And I think that's what he's getting, us, getting across to us. Consider those that you go to, your counselors, when life is really hard and, and you're at the end of your rope and you don't know what to do. Don't you go to those people who themselves have been through the most difficult times in the deepest of waters. And you go there because their advice is not trite. It's not bookish. It's not borrowed from others. If I could invent a term, it's lifeish. It's lessons that they themselves have gleaned from hard living and difficult things, disappointing times that they've made it through. And we go to them because their wisdom doesn't need to be said loud or need to be said long, but the wisdom is in the, inherent in the weight of their words. And so we go to them as our counselors. I brought in a way of illustrating this this morning. A, a brother of mine, a uh, brother in Christ, gave me a, a gift this past year. He gave me a knife. Only in Alaska can you bring a weapon you know, to the, the pulpit. Isn't that great? So anyways, this is not so much a weapon as a tool, but... 
uh, a brother made me this knife, and uh, he talked to me about it a little bit. Um, he, he assembled the maple here, and this is some ebony uh, mixed in, and then a little bit of, I believe this is mastodon tusk here on the end. But what was, I was really interested in was the blade. He talked to me about the blade itself. And this is high-carbon steel, uh, and it has what they call, a, I guess, a graduated uh, tempering process so that the Rockwell hardness, which is the standard that they measure it by here on the back side or the top of the blade, if you can see that, is up here. This is a Rockwell hardness in the 50s. I think it's 53. But here along the edge, uh, the Rockwell hardness is harder, and it's in the 60s. I believe it's 68. And, and so the whole point is that in order to get that extra hardness on the leading edge of this knife, it has to go through greater heat and greater pressure and greater friction to put an edge on it that will really work over time. It's actually harder to put an edge on the hardest steel, but once it's there, it will last longer and cut better than anything else. And I think God is in the business of doing that with our lives. We want to go through life fat, dumb, and happy, but he loves us too much and has too much at stake for us to do that. So he hardens us and he tempers us and he forms our character through difficult times. In fact, there is a passage that I want to read to you from Hebrews chapter 12. Our fathers disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And so, yes, hard times teach us more than happy times. They form our character. And what's implied in all of this is that hard times are equally from the hand of God. Hard times are equally from the hand of God. Look at verses 13 and 14. I believe he says this to us there. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked. We don't like to think about God making things crooked, do we? That doesn't jive with our simple way of looking at things. Verse 14, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. And I think our temptation as Christians is really to form a false dichotomy about the world and about God. So that when times feel good, whatever feels good, that must be from God. And whatever smacks of pain, well, that must be from the pit of hell. And I want to tell you that is a false dichotomy, Christian. That is not true. That is absolutely false. Solomon would have us believe that God is the giver of both pain and pleasure. He's not the author of evil, but it's an instrument that he's very skillful with. And he can use even that in our lives. Just because the pleasantries fade does not mean that God is absent, but very present. Maybe even doing his very best work. I would argue that some of God's best work was done through pain. And we only have to look at the cross to see that that's the case. Chuck Swindoll has said, if you expect good things, only good things from God, then you only have half a God. C.S. Lewis has said in his book, The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasure. 
speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And Philip Yancey has called pain the gift that nobody wants. I think there's many examples in Scripture of both men and women who went through these kinds of things and were better off for it, and we are better off for their experiences that are recorded for us. Joseph is one of these examples. He was given a dream by God, a clear and an accurate dream, and he shared it with others. And for sharing it with others, he was thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, separated from his family, falsely accused by the wife of his employer, and imprisoned in a dungeon. And his pleading during his imprisonment was, deliver me. He wanted to be delivered, and he cried out to those that he thought could help him, and he didn't realize that all along, God's plan of deliverance was already well underway. In fact, it was through the very pain that he was experiencing that God was delivering not only him, but his family, and not only his family, but the entire people of God, and not only all of Israel, but so that the rest of us could see what God can do, forming a nation and a people for himself. Joseph just said, remember me when you're out of here to see if you might be able to rescue me. God was already well underway of answering his prayers bigger and better than he could ever have imagined. And so hard times, yes, they teach us more than happy times. They form our character, and they are every bit from the hand of God as are the sweet and fun times of life. That's a message all in and of itself, isn't it? We could stop right there and chew on that for weeks. But Solomon goes on, and I'm sorry to say that this this next section doesn't connect a whole lot with what precedes it, but it's not my fault. (laughs) Because this is, after all, Solomon's sermon, and I'm preaching it secondhand here. The next section, if I were to sort of encapsulate it, I would say there's wisdom in moderation. Verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. Well, if I could summarize this, I would would say it like this. This is not a do-good, get-good world, is it? This is not a do-good, get-good world. There are those that want to preach the prosperity gospel saying that God's real aim is to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. If you'll just send in 39.95 and touch the screen, it'll happen for you. Solomon is no prosperity gospel preacher, and anybody who's preaching that message is doing so with their eyes closed. They're not looking at the scriptures or what they say, and they're not certainly not reading the lives of people around them. Solomon could not be accused of being a prosperity gospel preacher. Instead, what we find here is this: that righteous living isn't done with an eye for reward. It's done because it's right. Righteous living isn't done so that it might go well with us because the reality is it may go very wrong. It may backfire. Righteous living isn't done in order to make this life work for us. It's done as an act of worship for the one who made us and gave us life. That's why we live righteous lives or why we try to. 
Solomon's no prosperity gospel preacher. His message is an honest, hard-hitting message about reality, about life as it is, life under the sun, just the way that it is. And the reality is that while God made a perfect world, he put you and I in it with choice and with liberty. And with our choice and liberty, we sinned. And we brought sin into this world, and we have wrecked what God has made. The image of God, the Imago Dei, resides within us, and yet it's distorted and marred because sin continues to contaminate our lives in this world around us. That's just the way it is. The good news of the New Testament and of the cross and of Jesus is that's not the way it has to stay because he is redeeming all things. He is restoring all things to the way they should be, back to shalom. That's what God is doing. But Solomon doesn't have that perspective of the cross or the New Testament or of Jesus, yet he's still observing life as it is. And so his next point that he gets to is he tells us, don't be drawn to extremes, neither righteousness or in foolishness. And this is a little difficult to accept. We want to say, what's wrong with extremely righteous? I think the tendency of those who are extreme in their pursuit of righteousness oftentimes leads them to legalism. And I think that is one of just the default positions that we go to and try to earn favor with God. Rather than doing relationship with Him, we go to extremes. And we try to relate to Him in ways that are man-made constructs, rules of our own making, rather than dynamic relationship with the Creator. And so it looks like some of these kinds of things. See if you've heard any of these before. King James only. Read the Bible God reads. Have you ever heard it said that way? (sighs) Drums can't be used in worship. And then thou shalt not drink becomes the 11th commandment. And what we end up doing is like a carpenter in a wood shop, we end up creating a jig, which works great for getting the same cut just right every time out in the garage. But it doesn't work very good for relationship with God. We treat him as a set of rules. And that is not at all what he wants for us. He wants a dynamic relationship. And he has freed us from those kinds of rule keeping to earn favor with him. So I think that's sort of what extreme righteousness looks like. But then Solomon also cautions us about extreme liberty or extreme foolishness because we can make mistakes just to the opposite side, can't we? Well, it's not just the King James. I'm going to read every Bible translation until I find one that says it the way I like it said. No intentions of submitting our lives to any of them. Drums can't be used in worship. Instead of that, we end up saying, you can use anything in worship. And we have no scrutiny for even the words that we sing. If we like the beat, it's great. But we don't run the content through any serious theological grid. One of the things that I love so much about Pastor Keith and his ministry here is that what we sing, it's, we don't sing it just because it's new, and we don't sing it just because it's old. We sing it because it's true. And he runs it through a very careful theological grid. We need to sing old songs. We need to sing new songs because we have a living, dynamic relationship with God. Amen? I love the way Pastor Keith leads us in worship, and if you have a chance to uh, tell him thank you, please do so. Jesus probably said it better than anybody, better than Solomon even. We have to live in this world, but not be of it. 
And our relationship with God is not about the keeping of man-made rules. It's much more than that. The third section that I see here, if I were sort of to encapsulate it, I see advice to the wise, a word to the wise about wisdom itself of all things. Verse 19, wisdom makes one wise man more powerful than ten rulers in a city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Isn't this an amazing statement? One of the wisest men who ever lived is saying, I I don't even know the end of wisdom. I find wisdom elusive. Solomon, if I can say this, was so wise, he was able to make the declaration that I don't even know what I don't know. And I think that is the mark of a truly wise person That's not certainty in what they know. It's an understanding that there's much more than they have uh, come to know. He tells us here, I think, basically, don't be wise in your own eyes. Wise man or woman is not wise in their own eyes. We may possess a measure of wisdom. It might even advance us along in work. It might give us prominence in the community or secure for us some honor or station in life. But none of us is perfect. None of us is righteous. None of us is as we should be. And so in a sense we have to be careful because wisdom would propel us along and give us a platform and a stage only to show how unrighteous we really are. And so the truly wise person is humble about what they know. Solomon tells us that a measure of wisdom will not ensure a mistake-free life. I think this trait, when we apply it to ourselves, could be called humility. But I think this very same trait, when we extend it to others, is called grace. As hard as it is to apply it to ourselves and to be humble about what we think we know, as Solomon has said, if you you listen too close to what people say about you, you're going to hear your servant cursing you. And I think the message there is extend grace to them. Because inasmuch as you don't know everything, Grant them the ability to be wrong too. Grant them the space to be in error. Grant them the space to vent. Be humble about yourself and extend grace to others, leaving room for the Holy Spirit to do his work. Then Solomon turns to some really tricky passages here, by the way. So track along with me, verse 25. So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was searching but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. Anybody want to trade places with me right now? (laughs) What is Solomon telling us here about men and women in the world? What in the world is he telling us? I'll tell you what I see. I think he's telling us that we can all be fools. 
every one of us. We can all be fools. And I think the caution here overall is that we don't want to be surrounding ourselves with fools. Solomon is not saying here that all women are foolish and that there is an occasional wise man. This is not a misogynist message and the Bible is not a misogynist book. In fact, Proverbs 31 uh, describes the godly and the wise, honorable woman. And her beauty is one that's not skin deep. She possesses a character that has been hard won and formed through hard times, not just happy times. That's the kind of woman she is. In fact, actually, the Bible is filled with examples of this kind of woman. And even in the Hebrew arrangement of the scriptures, it is actually the book of Ruth that follows the 31st chapter of Proverbs because she is the embodiment of such a woman with such noble character. And so they arranged the Old Testament that way. Solomon does, however, warn us about the trappings of a godless and foolish woman. And as, as much, ladies, as much as you might be defensive about this particular passage, you know all too well that the seductress is out there. And you even know it better than probably some of us men do. You see her before we do. This is the woman that you try to keep your husband from. It's the woman that you caution your boys about, and it's the woman that you try to protect your daughter from becoming. There is a seductress out there. There is a godless and foolish woman, and she is a trap, and Solomon knew it all too well. And he is one, I think, in this particular occasion that's not trying to teach us from the high ground, but rather from the pit that he dug for himself. When you consider Solomon's life and who he surrounded himself with. Solomon should have surrounded himself with better women. The reality of things is you will find what you surround yourself with. And Solomon, while he says he was looking for wise women and couldn't find any of them, you have to acknowledge who he surrounded himself with. 1 Kings 11 tells us that Solomon took for himself 700 wives, 300 concubines. And we're told in 1 Kings 11 that these women worshipped other gods and that the Lord had specifically cautioned Israel not to intermarry with them. And Solomon foolishly rejected the Lord's command and took for himself a thousand godless women who were pagans. And he imprisoned them essentially for his own pleasure. And so when he says that among a thousand women I could not find a wise one, you have to say, Solomon, you're looking in the wrong place. You would have found what you were looking for had you looked in the right place. And so I think he teaches us very well here that so goes our fellowship, so goes our walk with God. We surround ourselves with fools, we will find fools and we will be like fools. If we surround ourselves with wise and godly people who have been formed in their character through hard times, not just happy times, we will find wisdom. We will find wisdom. My mother, when I was growing up, um, had a, a constant and steady prayer for me. Uh, actually, um, comes from the book of First Kings. But her prayer for me throughout my uh, childhood life was that God would give me wisdom beyond my years. It was a faithful and steady prayer of my mother's. And when I read this chapter and I, I look at wisdom and how it's attained and what it achieves, I go, thanks a lot, Mom. <laughs> because... It looks to be quite painful. 
and it doesn't always look to pay off. And sometimes, to be very honest and quite frank with you, it leaves me asking the question, is it worth it? Is wisdom worth it? Our expectation when we come to church on Sunday morning is that the preacher would give us a couple bullet points to go home with and that he would speak them with certainty and conviction. And instead of bringing to conclusion this morning, I want to leave you with the question to rattle around in your heads. Is wisdom worth it? And that's for you and the Holy Spirit to work out. Let me pray for us. Father, it might be a little bit trite to just declare that we want to be wise because as we look at this book and we look at Solomon's life and we look at those around us who are wise, we know that it doesn't come easy and it doesn't come without pain. It comes with greater temperature, greater pressure, and greater friction. So maybe at best we can say we want to want it. We want to want it. Father, we're thankful for Christ because we know that this world does not does not satisfy as Solomon concludes again and again. And we praise you that there is an eternity with you in your presence where righteousness and holiness abound, where we will be with you and we will be like you and the pain and the sorrow of life will be behind us and the joys of being with you will extend on for eternity. So we long for that day. May we please you in the meantime. In Jesus' name, amen.